Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Age Institute colleague, Ed Klass. On today's show, folks, we've got the pleasure of interviewing Dre Baldwin. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Ron, it's going great. You know, uh, baseball season is back upon us. That makes me happy, of course. Unfortunately, my New York Mets have been COVIDed out because the Nationals <laughs> ended up with the Rona again. So I have to wait until Monday. But other than that, everything's great. Oh, great. Well, I'm looking forward to today. We This... Uh, Dre Baldwin is a graduate of Penn State University and had a nine-year career as a professional basketball player. He's a noted expert in discipline, confidence, mental toughness, and personal initiative. He's authored 27 books, I feel like a piker, Ed, and holds a YouTube silver play button, which means he's got over 100,000 downloads. Today, he makes it easy for entrepreneurs to have consistent mental toughness and confidence to deliver their best mentally and physically, even when they least feel like it can learn more about Dre at workonyourgame.com. Dre Baldwin, or Dre all day, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Uh, thank you for having me, Ron and Ed. I'm excited to be here. Well, you hey, listen, know? man, you you uh, shot a one-minute or two-minute video to both me and Ed uh, as a way to get on yeah. the show. And I just have to tell you, it was one of the most innovative ways we've ever been asked to have a guest come on the show. So we had to have you on. So it's an honor that you're here. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad it worked. <laughs> well, listen, I've, uh, I'm dying to talk about your story. There's so much to talk about, but one of the things I gleaned from browsing your website this morning is you've always been athletic. You finally make the high school varsity team, basketball team as a senior, but you sat on the bench all year. You didn't make the NCAA team, but then you succeeded at the professional level. Dre, how, how did you not get discouraged? Yeah, well, I had a, a good front row seat in high school in my senior year, <laughs> uh, sitting there on the bench. And then in college to uh, to walk on, you know, I walked on at the Division three level. So that's not the March Madness you see on TV. That's Division one. And we were D3 down there in the basement. And your question is, how did I not get discouraged? Well, one thing was on the practical side of things is that I was kind of a late bloomer. I didn't start playing ball till I was 14. So I knew I still had more room for growth, even though I didn't have much success. And the other thing was I've always had this kind of mentality of uh, disagreeableness, I guess you could say, when you talk about the, the big five personality traits and disagreeableness, not meaning being a negative person, but the type of person who kind of goes against the grain. You see the situation and you say, all right, most people are looking this way at this situation. I'm going to look this way. And that's where you get a lot of your iconoclasts, entrepreneurs, people who kind of do their own thing. And I always had that mentality, even though, ironically, I was playing a team sport. I always had that mentality of kind of doing my own thing. So when I saw that it, well, the reality of the situation was my basketball career didn't look like it was going to be a career. But because of that, that wiring that I have, I was always looking to go a different way. And that was, oh, let's see if I can do it anyway. And that's Beautiful. what happened. Well, you're, you're, you should feel right at home here because we're contrarians as well. So uh, yes, that's great. Exactly. 
So you had a nine-year professional basketball career. You played in eight mm-hmm. countries. Um, which league was that? Well, each country has its own league, just like league? the United oh, okay. States. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so, so you every played country in, is unique. You played in each country's league. Okay. Right. Um, you, you know, you, you named some of the countries, Lithuania and Germany, Mexico. Did, uh, did you have a country that you liked best or saw things that you wanted to go back to? Um, yeah, I would probably actually go back to every place that I played just to, to travel as a visitor, not to play again. But as far as uh, playing, the three places that I would probably that I mentioned the most would be uh, Lithuania, because that's where I started. That was the first time I'd ever left the United States. So I'm there at 23 years old. And you know, with that background that you briefly shared, now I'm playing professional basketball. So it was kind of a surreal feeling, but it was also a feeling of accomplishment to first be there. And that was my first taste of life outside of America. So that was definitely number one because it was first. Then second, I would say Mexico. A lot of people are surprised when I say Mexico because you know Mexico is a third world country. But at that time, I'm in my early 20s. It was, it was unpredictable. Life in Mexico on a day-to-day basis was unpredictable. You never knew what was going to happen <laughs> on the court or off the court. So it was just Fun. I got three different infections in three different parts of my body <laughs> in Mexico. And <laughs> yeah, so that was that was just entertaining. I wouldn't do it now, but back then in my early 20s, I would do it. It was fun. And the third place would be Montenegro. I played in a city called Herzegovina, which is right on the Bay of Couture. So it wasn't too cold. It was about 50 degrees in the winter. And that was the place where I wrote about this in one of my books where I just really had to hustle really hard just to even make that contract happen. So the fact that I was able to make it happen just meant a lot to me and it showed me a lot of what I could create from scratch. And that's why that place meant so much. And because we practiced so much, my my outside shooting, I was feeling like Steph Curry before Steph Curry at the time because we practiced so much that I couldn't miss when I was playing there. No, that's awesome. Dre, what were the fans like, uh, you know, compared to say the U.S.? Wow. Well, in each country is unique again, but in those places, the fans are really excited to see American players, especially in a place like Mexico. They're really excited to see Americans because they expect you to be a, a superstar, you no know, celebrity walk on water just because you're from the United States. And they could tell you no know, people like me, these tall black guys, I know that we're not from there. And we know we're, they pretty much know we're there for one reason is to play basketball and Europe. The fans are, they're very knowledgeable. They know the game. They expect you to be really passionate about the team. They're really passionate about the team and the city and the, you know, just supporting that organization. And for them, like over here in America, of course, we have the fanatics, people who are all in, like you mentioned, the New York Mets. But a lot of fans in the United States, we watch it for entertainment purposes. It's entertainment to us. Over there is not so much entertainment. It's like a way of life, Hmm. cheering for the team that you cheer for because, in the United States, our professional sports teams, at least the big four, this is a business enterprise. They make money. Over there, a lot of the teams may only break even, and they may even lose money, but they continue to be funded because of the passion that the sponsors or the owners have for the team and for the town. Is not They're not just doing it as a way to earn revenue. They're doing it as a way to serve the community. So the people are really passionate about it. It's like a, a way of life to them where there are some American fans that are like that, but most of them I would say are not. Hmm. You know, even before you started to play pro, you started building your personal brand. 
you know, blogging and right. going on YouTube. And now you're involved with marketing campaigns with Nike and Wendy's and a whole bunch of others. You did this all with no advertising. What was your motivation to share so much knowledge? Because you have a ton of great content on your website. That's free. Oh, thank you. Yes, yeah, so thank you. Well, my motivation, the inspiration for it was I actually started blogging before I was doing anything online. I was blogging first in 2005. Then I started putting the videos on YouTube shortly after. And people came to know me from YouTube. YouTube was just more visible than blogs, at least for me. But I always had an idea that I have some things that I want to say that I know, like I mentioned earlier, is kind of what some people call contrarian or disagreeable, is just against the grain. I knew I had some things that I wanted to share that most people didn't think just from the conversations I would have with people. So when I saw blogging and it was just a way that, okay, anyone can get online and just express however they feel and publish it to the world. I said, perfect. That was exactly for me. So that's how I started it. And then once I started making the videos on YouTube, the players who were watching me, and these were just basketball videos at the time, the first five years, they started asking me about my background. And when I shared with them the same background that you just shared a few minutes ago, they started asking about my mental approach because they're like, all right, that sounds kind of far-fetched. Like, how are you going to become a pro with that kind of background? You barely played in high school, played D3 college ball. Most people with that background do not play professional basketball. So they could see that I could play because they were watching me on video every day. So then they wanted to know what was I thinking? What was my thought process? So that's when I started writing about that a little bit more. And then eventually, probably by around 2010, I started talking about the mental game side of things. And that's when people who weren't even athletes really started finding me when I started talking about that mental game thing. So my inspiration was just sharing what I had within me that I thought might be interesting to other people. And when I started sharing it, people were responding to it. And because they responded, I kept doing it. So that's really how it went. It was really that simple. Wow. That's phenomenal. Because as I was going through all your content, you, you share the same philosophy that Ed and I have, which is we give away our knowledge and right. the philosophy is if you give it away, then you have to replenish it. So you're always at the contrarian edge or the cutting edge. You seem to share that right. philosophy. Oh yeah. I put out so much stuff. I put out more stuff for free than most people put out period. And one thing that I tell people is if someone's trying to compare me to anyone else who's talking about the mental game, that my free stuff is better than their paid stuff. <laughs> so that's that's the angle that I have is that stuff I put out for free is better than anything that anyone else is putting out. And then, as you said, if you put all that stuff out, you're talking putting stuff out every day. Now the challenge is you have to do it again. Now you have to keep putting stuff out. You got to keep coming up with new ideas. And you really one thing it does help you do is master your voice. You know, so after you know, 15, 16 years of doing this, I know my voice. I know my approach. I know my angle and the people who come across me. Even if they just heard of me today, they can dive deep into that, you know, that well, into that vault, and they can get a pretty good feel for who I am and what I'm about in right. you know, 24 hours. Well, you know, you're a great accomplished speaker. I give you credit because you stand and you, you, when you present, you, you command the audience and you, you, I'm really interested in what you have to say. In 2009, you formed the Work On Your Game, Inc. You've got over 400 products. Again, you've written 27 books. Tell us about that journey. And I know we've only got a couple minutes, so it's a little bit unfair, but tell us about the journey of starting this enterprise. Sure. Well, that journey actually, the good luck of starting that journey actually came from the seed of, I guess, what we'll call bad luck. Because once I started that pro basketball career, it wasn't just a straight, you no know, up and to the right path. 
there were times when Ron, I didn't have a contract to play basketball. So I found myself just an unemployed free agent athlete. And while a lot of people in the sports fans don't realize that, yeah, you see the players who are playing on the teams like the Knicks and the, the Nets and the Mets, but there are a whole bunch of other players who want to be playing on the team, but they can't get signed because everybody cannot be on the team at the same time. Unlike a lot of other professions, like let's say podcasting or writing a book, anybody, as many people as want to do it, can do it. But in sports, it's not like that. So I found myself unemployed and I already had a little bit of an audience online. But again, it wasn't a thing yet. And I just asked myself, well, if this keeps going, where am I going to end up? I didn't like where my future projected with this up and down. So I asked myself the question, how can I find the the uh, triangle or the Venn diagram, I guess, between three things? where I have the talent, which is basketball, where I have some natural inclination and skill, which is computers slash the internet and where I can make money. How can I do all three together? So that's when I really started focusing on the, let me put these videos out every day consistently. Let me uh, start writing a little bit more about my experiences, about my mentality. And let's see what this internet thing becomes because this is before uh, personal branding, before social media was a phrase, all of these things were not even happening at that time. So when I started focusing on that, then that happened at the same time. So the good luck came from bad luck. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, that's awesome. Well, Dre, this is, uh, uh, <laughs> it's flying by. We're already at our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Check us out at patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can subscribe to our podcast and get our bonus episodes. That is now uh, sponsored by 90 Minds. Find the mind at 90 Minds. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now a word from our sponsors. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You 
You're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise with Dre Baldwin. Hashtag work on your game. Dre, I wanted to ask you... you about mental toughness, and you you said earlier that you were a little bit of a late bloomer with regard to, to basketball. When did you become aware of your mental toughness and how you were able to use it better than other people to your advantage? I became aware of that when I got, when I finally made the team in high school, actually, before you know, any of the, the YouTube or the internet, anything, because in where I come from, I come from the city of Philadelphia, I live in Miami now, but I grew up in Philly. When you try out for the basketball team, the school that I went to, we didn't even have no freshman team, no JV, just one varsity team with one coach, no assistant coaches, nothing. So everybody tried out for this one team. And the freshman year, all the people in my grade, we all tried out for the team. Every boy, young boy from the inner city thinks they can play basketball. At least they have a, a brief flirting with the game. So we all tried out ninth grade. Then 10th grade is a little bit fewer people try out. 11th grade, a little bit fewer. And by 12th grade, most of the seniors did not even come to tryouts in, when I was a senior, unless they were already on the basketball team. The guys on the team came, but the people who weren't, I could barely remember hardly any seniors trying out for the team that year, maybe five guys, because by that point, they had pretty much decided, hey, you know what? Basketball is probably not going to be for me. I haven't made it three times, three years in a row. It's probably not going to be my thing. I just had the, the thought in my mind that I was going to keep trying. Either I'm going to fail all four times or I'm going to make it this final time. I knew I only had one more shot. But for me, it was just to keep trying. And when I noticed that other people didn't keep trying, even though they still liked playing basketball, because when we would have like you no know, recess and things like that, these guys would still come. They would bring clothes to play basketball during recess, but they didn't want to try out for the basketball team is because I think a lot of them just were afraid of the embarrassment of being a senior trying out and not making it. I wasn't afraid of that embarrassment. And luckily I made the team. So I think it was then that I realized that, that some people just stop trying, not because they don't think they can, but because they don't want to deal with the whatever blowback they think they would feel if they try and it doesn't work. That's one of the things that continues to amaze me about professional athletes of at, at any level uh, but especially those that that get to, to get to play professionally, we we see the games, right? We see the games that are starting at eight o'clock at night or whatever. But what we don't see is the the sweat out there on the practice court for hours and hours every single day. That is that where the mental toughness really comes in. I mean, you, you got to be mentally tough in the game, yeah. But the mental toughness to just continue to work at the what you know they call in football block and tackle stuff, the very basics over and over and over again. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's the whole discipline. As a matter of fact, I have I'm working on a project that's going to be based on that coming soon. I can't announce it just yet, but it's coming soon. And yes, that is that's the gist. That's the not even the gist, but the essence rather of being a professional athlete is what you've just explained because the games are the fun part. You know, the reason why athletes stop playing is not because of the games because if all professional sports was, is the game, then we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. Cause I would have a game somewhere to go. Play. <laughs> it's the, it's the training. It's the off season workouts is the, the icing. It's the foam rolling. It's the stretching is the sports massages. It's the, 
time you have to spend off of your feet because you had one practice in the morning, you have another one in the evening. It's those are the things that make athletes stop playing. If you remember Kobe Bryant, when he did his last season, he wrote that first he wrote a letter, then they made it into a movie called Dear Basketball. And what he said, the very beginning of it was mentally, I can keep going, but I can't put my body through this anymore. He wasn't talking about the games because his last game, he goes out, scores 60 points. So obviously he loved playing in the games. It was the practice. It was the training that he would need to do to be Kobe Bryant, to be the level that he expected of himself. He didn't want to do that anymore. Now, he could have kind of went halfway with it and still kept playing. And he would have played on reputation alone as long as he wanted to. But he didn't want to do that work anymore. And that's why he stopped playing. Any professional athlete stops playing because of the training. It is not because of the competitions. And did you see the uh, ESPN documentary on Michael Jordan, Last Dance? Have you ha- had a chance to, to see that? Okay. The thing that this, the basketball story is, is obviously well known and the mental toughness that Michael Jordan had. But it, the, the, I think that the thing that I really got from that was a, or not, it wasn't a surprise to me, but it, but it was intense was how focused he was when he played baseball, like how intense he was when he decided that he, he was just as intense trying to play ba- baseball as he was, it w- was playing basketball. And that, 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 that just blew me away that how, how it, the incredible uh, tenacity that it takes to do that. Yeah. Michael Jordan was obviously he's been uh, noted as maybe one of the most competitive athletes of all time. He just had that will to try to win and dominate. And he had already did it in basketball. So I guess he said, <laughs> let me see if I can do it in baseball. So and be, at the same time with baseball, he knew he had a, everybody watching him and a target on his back and people looking at him saying, well, you only got this opportunity because of what you did in basketball, not because you're actually good at baseball. So I think he also on top of the fact that he wanted to do it for himself, he knew he had a lot to prove. And he's a guy who through that documentary, everybody now knows when he feels like he has something to prove, he does pretty well. So (laughs) he was slowly getting better at baseball. I don't know how good he would have been had he kept playing, but I think we're all grateful that he came back to his, his main sport was playing basketball. Yeah. And we saw that with Tim Tebow too, with, with, with my Mets for the last couple of seasons that he was able to, you know, just even make his way through the, the minor leagues to where he got was amazing. Let's, let's bring uh, it it, it to business. Now, what, what are the things that you take away from the, the mental toughness that you brought to your, your basketball playing career and what, and how do you apply them in, in the business setting now? Well, the way that I define mental toughness is your willingness to continue to show up every single day. That's the discipline, showing up and doing the work and to be confident, to believe in your plans, believe in your work, believe in yourself, even when the success you've expected to achieve has yet to be achieved. So mental toughness is just that some people will call it stick to or persistence or perseverance or grit, determination. All of them could kind of fall under that same umbrella. So in the business world, you get the same you get the same kind of challenges that you get in sports. So in sports, you might you're not going to make every shot that you take, no matter how good you are. Michael Jordan, I mean, he had a commercial talking about it, how many times he missed a shot or in the business world, you're going to put out products and maybe nobody's going to buy them or you might put out some content and nobody reads it or nobody watches it. It just doesn't get the traction that you thought it was going to get. But you have to keep showing up in business. You might you know, get fired from a job or you might get dropped from a contract or one of your clients might decide they don't want to work with you anymore. Any of these things can happen in the business world. You're working on something and then it stops working. So what are you going to do and how mentally locked in can you remain, even though you didn't get the outcome that you expected to get? Can you show up the next day as if you created the success, even though you actually 
on the surface, somebody will look at it and say, maybe that you failed. So that's what mental toughness is all about. Can you keep going and keep that same mental lock in that same activation? How about the application to, to teamwork? I mean, there, there is a, a great video. I'll have to, to see if I can dig it up that it was uh, Peter Drucker and I think Magic Johnson going back and forth about uh, basketball versus teams in in business. And they're t- they're talking about the same thing. What what did you learn from uh, the application of, of playing a team sport to the business? Because Oh, I know you have a team because we've interacted with uh, a couple of folks on your team who've been sending us emails and stuff. So talk about that aspect of it, the team part of business. One thing that I tell people, especially athletes, starting from the athlete position, is that every team, every successful team, everybody has a role and everybody accepts their role. On a sports team, you have, let's say, a team might, especially something like basketball where anybody can do anything. Anybody can shoot, anybody can dribble, pass, rebound. Whereas a sport like baseball, for example, you have a pitcher, they're the only one who throws the pitches. Then you have each person gets their turn to bat, but everybody gets an equal amount of opportunity. It's a little bit different in those sports, even football, even hockey. But basketball, anybody can do anything. So everyone has to know their role and have to accept their role. So on the Chicago Bulls, everybody knows down the stretch and the team needs points, the ball's going to number 23. And everybody was okay with that. Everyone accepted that. On teams that falter, you might have two or three guys who want to be that Michael Jordan guy, and they can't kind of reconcile who's going to be the main person. And that team doesn't succeed until everyone gets on the same page. You look at Kobe and Shaq. They start to have a little bit of conflict of leadership, and it didn't work. So everyone has to know their role. Everyone has to accept their role. And then everybody has to play their role. And every role matters. So the person sitting at the end of the bench if you're watching the game, you might say, well, this guy's a bum. He doesn't play in the games, but he has to be there in practice every day to make the guys who play work hard because they need someone to keep pushing them. And then the coach has a role. The, the water boy has a role. The people who watch the uniforms have a role. The leading scorer, that is a role because if they don't score those points, the team's probably not going to win. So everybody has to know their position and play that position. And people have to be able to hold each other accountable. Everyone should know what everyone else's job is and Make sure and there has to be some system of accountability in place, whether that's a process or it's people, but everyone should be able to be held accountable by somebody else within the organization. And when there's a process for everyone to follow, then it's not, you know, every day we just show up and say, all right, what are we going to do today? Let's figure it out from scratch. That doesn't work over the long term. It can work in the short term if you have really talented people or good timing or a great product. But in the long term, that doesn't work out if you don't have a process in place. So I think yeah, that that's great. Both sports and business. That's that's a great great uh, point. I one of my favorite stories. This was I think about you know, seven or eight years ago. There was a it was a major league baseball game, and one of the guys on the bench who'd been riding the bench most of the year noticed that a runner missed second base. And he was the only one other than him and the and the umpire who, who noticed it. And they they actually it was called an appeal play. They appealed him out and they got the guy out at second, but only because the guy on the bench was paying attention to what was going on on the field. Um, and, I you know, I, I just I, you know, I just see that as as such an important role, you know, being part of the team, even on the bench. And I coach my son's team. And one of the things that I would tell t- tell the kids because I was a bench coach, I say, I'm going to teach you how to be on the bench. We would go through that process. So, right. What sport is this? What's uh, baseball? Baseball. Yeah. Okay. He, yep. Yeah. My dad yep. coaches actually youth baseball to this day. Like 10 oh, really? Year old kids. Yeah, he does. Oh, that's great. Yeah. No, I think my coaching days are done. My son is now uh, in in his freshman year in high school, and he's beyond me from a, a skill. 
<laughs> skill standpoint, <laughs> which which I'm right. I'm pretty happy about. So, wow, this is as Ron said, flying by. We're up against our second break. Uh, Want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending that email to asktsoe at verisage.com. The website, The Soul of Enterprise, where we have show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with Dre Baldwin from workonyourgame.com. And Dre, I was listening to some of your talks this morning, and you said something that I just thought was incredibly profound that I kind of want you to explain. You said, to be the best you, it's the permission you give yourself to not conform to who you've already been up to this point. Explain that. That's... I believe the key to unlocking uh, this framework that I call the super you, which is all about you know, getting to your highest possible level of confidence. Because when I ask audiences, what's the number one trait that you would want? And we're talking something internal and intangible. Almost everyone says more self-esteem, a more healthy self-image. I want to be more confident. I just want to feel better about myself because they know that when they feel better about themselves, they do different things and they project a different energy and it leads to the whole world responding to them differently. And when people talk about confidence, people talk, uh, fake it till you make it, you know, uh, you know, envision yourself being the person that you want to be. You got to believe in yourself. You got to really want it. And there's so many cliched pieces of advice that come when people are talking confidence. But I think one of the main things that inhibits people when it comes to their self-image is that they are is all the years of baggage that they have. And this could be someone 15 years old or someone 55 years old, is that who they've been up to this point, they feel as if 
they had to continue being that person. They had to conform to what the outside world's expectations are of them, whether that means who you've been as an athlete on the court, who you've been as a person in your career or just in your everyday life. Because if you show up as someone other than who you've been, Ron, the people around you are going to do a double take. They're going to be looking at you a little bit funny. They might ask some questions. They may make some comments. They may ridicule you. They might attack you. They may have no, just something negative to say that makes you uncomfortable if you show up as someone other than what they expect of you. So this is what causes a lot of people to stay in their place in one place is because you're projecting what other people will think or expect of you when in actuality, most of the time, other people are not thinking about us at all. Most of the time, other people are not really thinking about anyone else except ourselves. We are all narcissists on a basic level. But many times people hold themselves in the same spot and their reasoning is, well, other people might think something or other people might say something when really it's just our self-talk is what we're telling ourselves. So you had to be willing to give yourself that permission to kind of step outside of yourself. And the story that I tell with that is a kid who was in high school on his high school basketball team. You might've heard me tell that story. And his coach comes in one day and says, okay, I'm going to make everybody on the team pretend to be one of your teammates today. So this one kid who's a mediocre at best player on his best day, he's mediocre. But he gets assigned to be, he has to pretend to be the best player on the team that day. So his assignment is to pretend to be this guy who is a lot better than him. So this one day in practice, he goes out and he's looking amazing. He's making all kinds of shots, doing all kinds of moves. His teammates are looking at him slack-jawed, like, man, where did this come from? Where are all these moves and scoring come from? Because he never does this. He never did it before. And at the end of practice, the coach says to him, listen, if that's what it takes, you need to pretend to be that guy every day. You need to just do that for the rest of your life because that was his best ever performance on the basketball court. And the reason that I share that story with people is because that kid was able to transform himself at the snap of a finger, not because he all of a sudden got skills because his coach told him to, and it wasn't any kind of magic. It was because he already had that in him, but the coach, that authority figure gave him permission to stop being who he was and start being somebody else. Now as adults, no, this is a 16, 15 year old kid being told what to do. As adults, when you're 34, 47, you have to decide on, for yourself that you're gonna be somebody different. And you're not hiding behind the guise of, well, my basketball coach told me to do it. It's just you deciding to do it. And I think so many of us are so afraid of stepping outside of the image that we have, that has uh, calcified in our own minds that we just don't do it. Right. And along those same lines, it might've been the same talk or a different one, but you ask the audience, how many times have you been too confident, too arrogant, too cocky and compare that to how yeah, many times you've been, you know, <laughs> uh, you didn't go far enough. You stopped short. It's like we place our own limitations. Mm -hmm. and, and then you say, if you're going to make a mistake, which one do you want to make? That's right. And that's a, a question that I ask, even when I give keynote presentations and people always laugh because I ask them, all right, tell me all the times when no, you didn't have, tell me all the times you had too much confidence. And then I say, well, let me, I'm going to take a sip of water because I know you need a lot of time to think about that. And everybody just laughs in spite of themselves because they know there aren't too many of those instances when too much confidence got in their way. But people always, people often bring this up, especially when I start talking about confidence and just take it as far as you can. Someone always throws in, well, Dre, you can't go too far with confidence. You got to keep it under control. I'm saying, okay, when has, getting, when has your confidence gotten out of control and hurt you? Name one time. Most of the time, people can't name one. <laughs> but, and then I say, all right, tell me all the times you didn't have enough confidence. And they don't have enough time to think about that. So if you're going to make a mistake, you know, as, as I heard somebody once say, if you're going to be a monkey, be a gorilla. 
You know, if you're going to mess it up, you mess it up all the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then you said the difference between the amateur and the professionals changing the word mm -hmm. if to until. Right. And I thought that was brilliant too. Oh, thank you. And that is really about, uh, Ron, once you decide something that something that you're seriously about. Now, we can't do that with every single thing that you do in life. But the things that matter the most to you, it's not a matter of if you're going to achieve the outcome, you're going to keep changing your approach until you find the outcome that you want. You know, Napoleon Hill and uh, The Laws of Success, one of my favorite books, and Think and Grow Rich is derived from The Laws of Success. The Laws of Success is a little bit longer book. He talks about this, that when you come up with your first plan, if it doesn't work, come up with a new plan and keep coming up with new plans until you reach the outcome that you want. And the reason most people fail is because of their lack of persistence in coming up with new plans when the current plan isn't working. It's very simple, very trite, but most people don't follow it. And most of the, the rules of success in life are not these complex things. They're very simple. And anyone who teaches success or personal growth or personal development, we're all saying the same stuff. We just say it in different ways and we give it different names and we sell it for different prices, but it's all the same material. Right. Do you think, Dre, we learn more from success or failure? That's a good question. I would say from failure. As I heard, uh, Tony Robbins, the first person I heard say, he said, when people succeed, they party. And when they fail, they ponder. Right? Because <laughs> when, we, when we succeed in life, we, we start feeling ourselves, right? We start feeling that we're invincible and you know, nobody can stop us. And that's good to have that confidence. But the thing is, even when you succeed, doesn't mean everything that you did was perfect. Maybe the timing was just right. Maybe you were talking to the right person at the right time. Maybe you just got lucky. All of those things are good things to have. I love having good timing and I love luck, but that doesn't mean that I'm perfect. Just because I succeeded with those aiding me doesn't mean that I'm perfect. And what happens a lot of times when we succeed is that we don't look critically at anything that we did because we just assume that you know, we must be perfect. When we fail, we look at everything. When we fail, we question you know, sometimes if someone's you know, mentality is not in the right place, we get to question our entire existence when you fail in a big way. Let's say that you put a lot of time and effort into a big launch or some product or something that you were telling everybody about, and then you go do it and it's a complete flop. You're questioning your whole livelihood. Like, why did I even get into this industry in the first place? So you don't want to go that far. And this is where it would help to have some kind of self-regulation or a coach or a mentor who can help you out. But to answer your question, we learn a lot more from our failures because we tend to look at ourselves critically when we fail. Whereas when we succeed, we tend to just think that we're just perfect. Right. You know, one of your podcasts I listened to this morning, it was mental errors are unacceptable. And we love to quote Yogi Berra. We made the wrong mistakes. Why is, why are physical errors okay, but mental errors are unacceptable? Because no human being is perfect. And I actually got that the mental errors thing, the person that I first heard say that was when I was a kid, I played youth baseball and my dad was the coach and he would say that to us, to the team. He would say, all right, if you guys make a physical error, like you strike out or the ball gets hit to you and you drop it, okay. I don't want that to happen, but okay. But the mental errors, like uh, you don't know how many outs there are or you don't know where you're going to throw the ball. The ball gets hit to you. You don't know which base to throw it to. That's unacceptable because that means you're just not paying attention. Because anybody can have a bad day physically. I mean, it could rain one day, so you can't do your thing outside. Or if you're a, a basketball player, you might just go up against a player who's just better than you, and they just beat you because they're just better than you, or they're just having a great day. They normally shoot 
30% from three, but this day they make 80% of the three-pointers, you lose. That can happen to anyone. But a mental error means you are just not focused. You're not paying attention. You weren't on point from the beginning. There's no need to have a bad day mentally. You can have a bad day physically. Everybody has them. But there is no excuse for having a bad day mentally because you can choose. This is a choice to be locked in mentally to know what's going on. Just like uh, Ed gave the example of uh, somebody sitting on the bench and they noticed something that happened. They could have been daydreaming and saying, man, I should be getting in the game. Maybe I shouldn't have been a baseball player. I could be doing something else. But they were locked in on what they were doing. And that's the kind of mental focus that as a professional, you have to have that. If you don't have that, then you don't belong in the pros in anything. You've got a new product coming soon called Raise Your Value. And we, Ed and I are pricing consultants, so we spend a lot of time on value pricing. And, you know, you, you say it's, it's time to up your worth and time to start demanding and getting it from the marketplace. Can you share anything about that product or, or at least your philosophy behind it? Yeah, the Raise Your Value course is something that actually, I, that one is already actually available. I put that out. I use it oftentimes as a bonus with a lot of my courses, that uh, course itself. And what it's really about is I made it for entrepreneurs who are just trying to figure out, you know, how do I price my stuff or how do I get people to see me as a higher level individual? It's not really about the dollar amount. It is, but it's not. It's about how do I get people to see me as a higher level individual? And that really starts with the individual seeing yourself as somebody who's worth more and then being able to understand in your own mind, reconcile in your own mind why you're worth more. And then if somebody ever asks, you're able to articulate and explain why you're worth what you're worth. And in the business world, that matters a whole lot. And what people really need to keep in mind, especially when, whenever we're talking about price and value and sales, is that price is nothing but a story. Price is just a story. Yeah. When you change the story, you change the price. And yet just yesterday, I remember I was in the, the clubhouse streaming at and people were talking about how much they price their coaching or their speaking. And someone was just trying to explain how they break it down or how much it's an hour of your time is worth and this and that. And I said to them, listen, I don't price my stuff based on that. I price my stuff based on, listen, you can't get what I offer anywhere else. So this is the price. If you want me, this is how much you pay. If you don't want to pay it, then you get somebody else. But nobody else can offer what I offer. So this is the price. This is what it is. I don't have to explain it. And that's the way that I look at price and the way I look at value. When you change the story, you change the outcome. No, that's so true. And it's part of your contrarian philosophy too, because the last thing we want is our dumbest competitors setting our price. Exactly. Dre, I have to ask you this. Um, should NCAA players be paid? No. Why not? There's, there's two answers to the question. Now, the logical, practical answer is no, they should not be paid. And the reason why the logical answer is no is because they accepted a scholarship that says they don't get paid. So okay. they don't deserve to get paid because you signed a scholarship as a contract. It says we will give you school for free, room and board for free if you play football and you signed it. So therefore, you can't complain that you're not getting paid because you accepted that offer. Now, on a, a bigger picture view, a more moral view, should the players get paid based on the fact that they're generating a ton of revenue and it's going into the pockets of the coaches and the universities and the conferences? Yes. They should get paid based on the amount of equity that they generate compared to the amount of equity that they're receiving. They should get paid based off that. However, the only way they're ever going to get that money is they must come together and they must leverage their power in order to get the NCAA to give them the money. But if they don't do that, then they don't deserve the money just on a, a moralistic basis. They have to 
you only get what you are able to demand or negotiate in life. It's three levels of earning. And I, I know we're running up on times. Three levels of earning. You accept what is offered you, which is what NCAA players do when they accept the scholarship to play for free. You can negotiate and say, okay, we want this. We want this. You go back and forth. You agree to something or you make a demand. You say, this is what I want is take it or leave it. And the NCAA players who accept the scholarship are at the first level of earning, which is accepting. If they want to get paid, they either have to negotiate or demand. None of them has done it yet. Therefore, they deserve zero. Excellent. That's one of the best explanations I've heard. So thank you for that. That's great. Uh, unfortunately, we're up against our next break. And folks, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. We will post full show notes with our interview with Dre at thesoulofenterprise.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSO and subscribe today please for the love of god make it stop you are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise and we are back with Dre Baldwin. Baldwin, the uh, the website is Dre All Day, where you can look at uh, an unbelievable amount of free content. Plus, uh, take a look at some of his master classes and what he's uh, coming up with for for you in in the next uh, couple of months. Here, we look forward to looking at that as well. Dre, I wanted to just jump back quickly since Ron stole my question about the NCAA. Um, I wanted to jump back quickly and ask you about the whole confidence thing and contrast confidence with arrogance, because like like you, I think that there's a big that we, we, we there's a missing element of confidence for a lot of people. And I think it's because people are afraid to be perceived as arrogant. That's they, that's what they're worried about. Arrogance is a whole nother level. And it's not confidence. And I try to explain that those two things are not the same, but unfortunately they're perceived as the same by a lot of people. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Ed. And the thing with arrogance and confidence is that it's all a matter of perception. It's all a matter of how people look at it because you could look at someone like, let's say Floyd Mayweather, 
some people will say he's very arrogant because of the way that he talks and the way that he shows off his material possessions and this and that. And other people will say, well, he's not arrogant. He's just confident. And the things that he's saying, he actually did them. So you can't really be mad at him for it. So there, there are two schools of thought on it. And I think the, the way that people get divided is based on their own level of confidence. So when I look at somebody like Floyd Mayweather, it doesn't bother me the way that he talks. Now, I like him as a boxer, but even if I didn't, I would still have to give him credit and say, well, look, he's undefeated. He did win every fight. So if he talks trash about being the best boxer, well, he's not lying. He won. And if, even if you don't like somebody, you have to be able to, and this is the way that I try to objectively look at things, you have to still be able to give them credit for when they're right. And a lot of people, when they cannot fathom a certain level of confidence and they see somebody else having it, they look at that person and say, well, that person's arrogant or that person is full of themselves. That person is cocky or they're conceited. And what I believe is that when you raise your level of confidence, when you raise your level above what other people are capable of seeing themselves at, that's when they put that negative label on you, not because they really think you're doing something wrong, but because in order to reconcile it in their own minds, because when you see someone who is at a level that's way above you that you could be at, but you're not there, you have two choices. You could either A, do the work that will get you up to where they're at, and that may take a long time, and you might not even succeed, or B, you can come up with a way to, in your own mind, mentally pull them down to where you are. They didn't actually come down, but you see them as lower because you put this negative label on them. Okay, this person is doing hundred times better than me and the same job as me, but they're arrogant. So it makes it okay. It, it just allows you to sleep at night is basically what it does. And this is the way that a lot of people mentally pull other people down, not because that person's doing anything wrong, but because it allows them to feel okay with themselves that are, it's all right. This person's better than me because they're doing this negative thing. Yeah, I believe it. I think it's Pete Rose, who's not the best role model, admittedly, but he said he has a quote to something like, it ain't bragging if it's true. <laughs> <laughs> what did Pete Rose do wrong? Well, he bet. He bet you, know, you know, he well, I always say he bet on his own team. It wasn't like he was betting against his team. That was, you know, yeah. He bet on his team to win, right? <laughs> that's right. He bet on his team to win. I, like, you know. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> it's he confidence. Making the moves would be different. Exactly. Yeah, ab absolutely. We're not talking point shaving here or anything like that. Um exactly. So I uh, wanted to, to, to just uh, give you a chance to talk about, you know, what what you think of as the, the future. Um, well, let me before I ask that question. You're talking a lot here about what, what I see is a lot of folks are envious of others. We hear a lot talked about inequality uh, in, in, in the world today, and there there certainly is. But. Ron and I are big believers in, hey, what we absolutely need is a, a quality of opportunity. It doesn't guarantee a quality of outcome. And if you're looking for a quality of outcome, that's that's not really a world that I want to live in. <laughs> thought, thought, what well, are your thoughts on that? You never live in that world. Well, you yeah. never live in a world of equality of outcome because you can't even manufacture that even if you try it. But I'm sure both of you know, or maybe you don't, I mean, there are people writing books about this and their yeah. books are themed around equality of outcome and they're very popular books. So <laughs> is it, we got a, we got a big culture war on our hands that hasn't even started yet. So what do I think of equality of, you're saying of opportunity? Or opportunity. Outcome? Yeah. Uh, well, the, opportunity? The, you... um, I don't even think equality of opportunity is possible. I don't think it's possible to even manufacture that because if we look at it, 
two people could come from the same neighborhood, live right next door to each other and end up with different opportunities in life because their parents made different choices. Their parents did different things because they're different sizes. I'm six, four. Now I have friends I grew up with. My friend that grew up next door to me is five, seven. All right, we didn't get the same opportunity to play basketball because I have certain attributes that he doesn't have. And that's just the way that it is in life. Life, there is randomness that occurs in life, right? Now, I live in Miami, Florida. I'm going to walk outside with this t-shirt on today and because of where I live. And there are some people living in New York and they've done all the hard work that I've done, went to the same schools as me and they can't walk outside with a t-shirt unless they want to get sick because I live somewhere that they don't live. So everyone doesn't get the same opportunity. And that is what I feel is the flavor of life. What I tell people is instead of looking at what's on other people's plate, don't look at the food on other people's plate. You need to look at, first of all, what's on your plate. And secondly, ask yourself, where can I position myself in life to where I have an unfair advantage that is ethically obtained? Where can you get an ethical, unfair advantage? If you look at anyone who invests in, I don't know if either you do anything like with the stock market or things like that. People who are sophisticated investors, I hear them say this all the time. I don't invest a dollar unless I have some type of unfair advantage over everybody else. Because by the time everyone has an equal opportunity to buy a stock, there's no opportunity there. You're paying for the fact that everybody already has all the information. So in life, I don't think, first of all, equal outcomes will never happen. And secondly, even these people talking or looking for equal opportunity, I don't think that's even going to happen either. Even if you try to force it, it's not going to work. And what you're actually going to do is just pull people down who earned a better opportunity. And sometimes in life, opportunities are earned. They're not just uh, given with privilege. Yeah, I've, I've heard it put this way. At the Olympics, the bronze medalists hates the silver medalist and the gold medalist. The silver medalist hates the gold medalist, but the person who finishes 50th is just happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. So everybody got a chance. Yeah, some, some people just win. I, I absolutely love the phrase unethical, fair or, or, or ethical, unfair advantage. I think that is a great phrase. Exactly. Ethical, fair advantage, because what you're, Maybe I'm making a connection here with something you said earlier. You're talking about the hedgehog principle, right? The, the Venn diagram. It's almost the same question, isn't it? It's like that's what you're looking for in the middle of the of that the intersection of that Venn diagram. Right. Where can you separate yourself from everyone else? Not violating anybody else's rights, but you have an advantage that they don't have. That's that's the whole game. It's the whole purpose mm -hmm. of competition. All right. Well, we've got only got about a minute left. Uh, I know you can't talk about it officially, but what, what's, what's coming up for Dre? I have a new book coming out this year. Coming up. I'm thinking late summer, probably late summer is coming out. I can't even say what it is yet because I haven't announced <laughs> it yet. I don't even have a visual yet, but I would love to come back on the show when it's ready and we could talk about it. We can spend a whole hour talking about it if you like. But that is the biggest thing that I'm working on. And besides that, really just spending a lot of time uh, talking to people like you guys and spreading this work on your game philosophy because I think it can be very impactful for a lot of people, but not everybody knows about it. And it's my responsibility to make sure that they do. So I'm really just going to be getting out there, making sure that people know my name, know my voice and know about work on your game. All right. Work on your game is the hashtag. Uh, Dre all day, the website, any place else somebody should go to, to try to find you, Dre. Sure. I have a book that people can get for free. They just cover the shipping. Can I share that? Yeah, please. Sure. It is my book called The Mirror of Motivation. I have it here. Let me see if I can grab it. It is The Self-Guide to Self-Discipline. And it is the first book of mine that anybody should read. Here it is right here. Uh, the reason I tell people to get this book is everyone understands the concept of working hard to achieve your goals. But few people ask themselves the question, who do I need to be as a person? 
This book provides the frameworks for you to answer that question so you can be who you need to be, so you can do what you need to do and have what you want to have in life. I'll give you the book free. All we ask is that you help us out by covering the shipping. You can get this by going to mirrorofmotivation.com. That's mirrorofmotivation.com. Outstanding. Dre Ballman, this has been such a pleasure. Really ha uh, happy to have you on the, the show today. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we're going to be talking to Alex Norasta from the Cato Institute talking about immigration. Well, I look forward to that. He's a, he's a really brilliant mind, so I look forward to talking to him. Well, I'll see you in 167 hours then. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so the organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 12 p.m. Pacific. We moved up an hour. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. Also, if you want to contact Ed or me, send us an email to ask tsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.